episode of Rankin Review, but it is the last Bunker episode, the last, you know, your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons fighting his way solo through a, a Rankin Review, and I'd like to thank everyone for, of course, listening to the podcast, and as usual, warn them of spoilers for the three movies that we're going to be talking about this episode, and perhaps some coarse language from me, you know, because I am who I am. But for those of you who have been enjoying the bunkers, both of you, thank you for listening. And for those of you who are like, oh, come on, well, there'll, there'll be more regular ranking reviews to come and take solace in the fact that this is the indeed last bunker episode. The theme is roughly on the 1960s and uh, there's some ground to cover. But just to prepare you for what's going to be hitting your ears this episode, I'm going to be reviewing... Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, Repulsion, and Peeping Tom. And then I'm going to do a breakdown, sort of be cut through the episode, a breakdown of the 36 episodes of The Twilight Zone, season one, the 36 of them that I watched in that month. And then I'll do a list of the six most popular or famous episodes from that season of The Twilight Zone. And I will pick my own random six episodes that I think are worthy of checking out. But truly, I would say 35 out of the 36 episodes are worthy of your attention. So that's the bit of business that you've plugged in your ears this day on Rank and Review. Thank you so much for your interest. Do tell your friends about the podcast. You can send feedback to review at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. The website is rankinreview.ca. Be gentle, this was an experimental episode, and it is indeed the last of this series of five experimental episodes. And we're going to get back to more standard R&Rs in just a couple of weeks. But until then, if you need something to jam into your ears other than rank and review, I invite you to check out the Shelf Shedding Movie Show hosted by my friend Mr. Jason Dubray, because he knows what he's doing, and he also deserves an audience. So let's talk about bunkers. Let's talk about the 1960s. Let's talk about madness. Let's talk about the Twilight Zone. Let's talk. Picture it. October 2020. The age of COVID has just begun. 
Larry Parsons, your host and random Canadian, undertakes a project into which he will watch 31 movies, read three books, and watch an entire season of television within the 31 days of October. He's going to do this all by himself. He's going to do this in a way to bank episodes for his podcast, which he's having increasing technical difficulties putting together, and with the isolated social circumstances of the world, getting trouble having regular guests getting on the show. I decided to undertake this project so that I could keep my (laughs) dozens of listeners happy and keep myself happy and maintain the goals of the episodes while covering a lot of material in one month, sort of challenging myself. Because believe it or not, watching movies is not all that I do. I have these two teenage boys, I have a job, I have a life outside of podcasting. And I sort of broke them off into like many episodes, like, well, the way the Bunker episodes were released. This episode is themed on the 1960s to help me do research for my Best of the 60s episode. I did a whole batch of episodes that were sort of sequels that would be hard selling on, you know, your average guest to the podcast. I did a bunch of very low budget or lo-fi or minimally executed horror movies done on the cheap. I talked about six different movies that were at the time only available on streaming. I talked about six hard-to-get horror movies that I've always wanted to see or have in my collection but just haven't been able to. And uh, I... I tried to mix it up, like, keep things interesting for myself and have a range of episodes and stuff to talk about. Now, how successful it was, I guess, is a matter of opinion. I think the first episode was pretty terrible, honestly, but I was rushing against a timeline and uh, I didn't know what I was doing and I got a little more comfortable as we were going along. This mini-episode that you're plugging into your ears is the last of the Bunker episodes, and it's only going to have three full-length reviews in it. Um, That being Peeping Tom, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, and Repulsion. Why am I only doing three reviews this episode? Well, partly because I'm lazy and I've had a stressful week. No, that's not entirely true. But I do think that Quaden, Eyes Without a Face, and Seconds, which I did talk about to some degree on my Best of the 60s list, kind of deserve proper reviews. Peeping Tom deserves to have a guest help me review it too in a lot of ways, but I feel like Peeping Tom is in the discussion, and those other three are things that especially people of my generation or younger could have very likely and, you know, unfortunately missed. So I'm going to table Quaden, Eyes Without a Face, and Seconds for hopefully future episodes of Rankin Review. And the bulk of this episode is going to be taken up with me talking about the first season of The Twilight Zone, which, you know, there's 36 episodes. I do sort of a branch summary of each one throughout the episode, and then at the end of the episode there's going to be a a list of the six most famous episodes from the first season, just so my top six aren't the exact same as, you know, what everybody is familiar with. And then another six episodes, other than these super famous ones, that I really enjoyed from the first season. But, just so I can say, this is what I went through. This is what the entire project undertook. This is the list of the 31 movies, the three books, and the TV series that I watched October 2020. Subspecies. Subspecies.
Claudin, Amityville 3D, 1922. I'm thinking of ending things. Possession, Peeping Tom, Two-Headed Shark Attack, Children of the Corn 5, Antrim, You Should Have Left, Mr. Frost, Between Worlds, Dracula 2003, Hush, Repulsion, Ritual, Seven Below, Hell Knight, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, Lost Boys the Tribe, Terrifier, Eyes Without a Face, Mimic Three Sentinel, The Plague, Sputnik, Nina Forever, Cargo, Dark Wolf, Seconds, and Final Destination. I read the Friday the 13th fan fiction novel of Church of the Divine Psychopath. I read a graphic novel about Jeffrey Dahmer called My Friend Dahmer. And I read the new Max Brooks Bigfoot book called Devolution. And of course, as we're going to get into quite in depth this episode, I explored the entire first season of The Twilight Zone from 1959 and 1960. So I went through all of that, and if you guys listened this far, you kind of went through it with me. Will I relive this experiment or will I retry this? Well, it's not going to be another bunker episode, and I'm not going to like start with some silly artifice that I abandon. But there may be episodes or solo episodes or audio documentary episodes in the future, but I don't think I would approach it this way. This was an experiment, and there was degrees of failure and degrees of success, and I thank you, my listeners, for struggling through both of those ends of it with me. did our list of the best horrors of the 1960s that we'd seen between the two of us anyway. We both agreed that George Romero's Night of the Living Dead was the best horror movie of that particular decade. And I'm not here to revisit that because it wasn't a fight, it was an agreement. But if we were to include television, I'm afraid my good friend George Romero might have come in second. Technically, the first, I think, five or six episodes of the uh, Twilight Zone series started to air in 59, but in 1960s where the bulk of the episodes aired of the first season of the Twilight Zone. And I think the most essential horror, or the most essential genre, the most essential viewing of the 60s might just be the Twilight Zone. And it's an incredible feat. And considering, like, TV's come a long way, we're supposedly in this great age of TV narrative and uh, the, the line between motion pictures and TV blurring and cinematic universes expanding too much or television sort of usurping the area of drawing the type of talent and the type of storytelling that traditionally was reserved for the big screen cinema releases. But the amount of imagination packed into these 36 episodes and the fact that most of them were written 
by Rod Serling. All of them were produced by Rod Serling, and he introduced and narrates every single episode. And yes, a lot of them are based off of, you know, stories from, from Beaumont and Matheson, and he's adapting them for his TV show. But still, the sheer volume and the ridiculous level of the quality of the show is absolutely gobsmacking. And is some of it dated through the lens of 2022 as compared to when it aired in 1959 and 1960? Well, unavoidably, yes. But an astounding lot of it is still absolutely riveting today. And I love this sort of new story every week, 25-minute package. In later seasons, they went to uh, 45-minute episodes, and I actually think it hurt the show. But in this first year, there's very, very few bumps in the road. I believe there's only one episode that I would say just don't bother watching at all. It's called Mr. Beavis, and it's like a weird Twilight Zone comedy, and shut up, Beavis. (laughs) But really, honestly, watch every other episode of the first season of The Twilight Zone. And I'm talking about the original Twilight Zone. I grew up watching The Twilight Zone from the 80s and ended up backing into this one, but... I loved it. And during the whole bunker experiment, um, you know, you'd think I'd be getting my fill of watching these, you know, crappy sequels or, or new discoveries from the 60s or whatever different movies that I was inflicting myself upon, not on top of the reading and on top of the other things that I was trying to keep up with all in that one month. The one thing that never felt like a chore were these little bite-sized 25-minute visits to the Twilight Zone. Everybody go when man wakes up alone. The world is empty, preys on fears of isolation. One for the angels. A pitchman ends up making a deal with death to extend his lifespan, but at what cost? Mr. Denton on Doomsday, a western-themed Twilight Zone episode where an aging gunslinger is facing the end of the road and is given a chance to... rekindle his former glory, although his former glory was kind of awful in that he killed a lot of people. 16mm Shrine, an aging diva, is going mad in her mansion, but uh, within her madness she may access some kind of an escape. Walking Distance, a classic nostalgic story of a man who walks to his hometown and doesn't just visit in a nostalgic way there, but actually seems to manage to time travel. Escape Clause, a man makes a deal with the devil for immortality, and built into the contract is an escape clause. If he truly cannot stand living anymore, there will always be an out. The Lonely, about a prisoner on an asteroid who's given a gift from one of the people who deliver supplies to him out of empathy and uh, how that changes his life and how their return changes everything. 
Time Enough at Last, the story of a bookworm who accidentally survives a bomb being dropped. Perchance to dream about a man who believes that if he sleeps, he will die, feeding on the power of your own imagination and its effect in, in that way how something not real becomes real or manifests real. Judgment Night, a period sort of science fiction thing about a bunch of strangers on a boat during wartime and one man who's feeling strange feelings of familiarity and expectation and deja vu as to what this voyage is and what it means for him and the rest of the people on board. And when the sky was open, people start to vanish and nobody notices. Sort of the horror of suddenly being rendered insignificant, not just to die, but to be erased in some way. What you need about a salesman who always knows just what his client needs and a gangster who tries to exploit this gift. so fair why is there blood all over your hair whatever happened to baby jane to seek the answer to that question we will follow a man plotting a murder highly specialized work but robert aldridge has considerable experience in such matters he has a dozen successful pictures to his credit his stars are betty davis and joan crawford the scene an Italianate villa in a once fashionable section of Los Angeles. Its halls, once crowded with the bright, the beautiful, and the celebrated, now echo only to hectic whispers, the insistent call of a buzzer better left unanswered, a telephone that has become an object of fear, a supper tray that will not be touched, a window barred against the world, a hammer, a mute scrawl, crying for help. From these elements, director Aldrich has fashioned a motion picture with a curious title, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Betty Davis is Jane Hudson. Joan Crawford is Blanche Hudson. But we must warn you, if you're long-standing fans of Miss Davis and Miss Crawford, this motion picture is quite unlike anything they have ever done. It is a bold essay in the art of the macabre, a venture to the ultimate reaches of terror. A motion picture definitely not for the squeamish. And we beg you, as the tension builds to the screaming point, as shock after shock assaults your senses, try to remember that this is only a motion picture. So what's my problem with whatever happened to Mary Jane? This is a 1962 film directed by Robert Aldrich and starring Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. 
and it's very famous. It's based off of a, a novel. It's <clears throat> well celebrated and kind of infamous before it's, you know, bitter conflict between the two main characters that would, was mirrored in real life by a bitter conflict between the two actresses. And I guess it's weird to say it, but it's successfully doing what it means to do pretty well in that it puts you in this place where you're watching these two characters. Well, for most of the time, it's Betty Davis just being cruel to her paraplegic sister, Joan Crawford. But we, we see the psychologically poisonous environment that they've come from and how it's come to this place and how through mutual distrust and distaste and, and, and loathing have locked each other together with their fates. Um, Baby Jane was a very famous Hollywood star when she was a child and when her father was still alive, but time has not allowed her to maintain her fame. And uh, her sister, the, the, the sisters have this whole competition going on between them, but when she goes from being the breadwinner and supporting the family to having to rely on her sister contractually. If her sister gets work, then she gets some too. Uh, so they are dependent upon each other. So it seems like they're, they're permanently tied together. And when the accident happens and one, and Joan Crawford is ended up in a wheelchair, uh, her sister is the one who takes care of them again, forcing them together, making this like an impossible situation where they hate each other, but they are reliant, literally reliant on each other to survive and maintain their world. And it's a, obviously a portrait of psychological poison of conflict between, you know, strong headed, powerful women and that sort of poisonous environment of, you know, you know, coming up in, as a child actor and being sort of soured by your environment so completely. Or, you know, the, the crashing psychological blow of achieving your life's dream at such a young age and then having to live past it and, you know, having peaked too early. And again, this all seems like rich psychological backdrop. The performances are celebrated, the novel is celebrated, the movie is celebrated, but... I don't know. It's not that I don't mind movies that are dreary or ugly or have a negative outcome. I mean, the 1960s were full of these things. Rosemary's Baby did not put you in a good place, and it kept you in that not good place, and then it ended badly. It didn't even pay you off in a satisfactory, okay, everything's going to be cool now. Uh, Night of the Living Dead, you know, was one of the biggest fuck-you endings in, in horror movie history. It's just a devastating portrait of failure in a lot of ways. So, uh, again, it's not the ugliness that, that's going to necessarily turn me away, but it's the way the movie is celebrated. I mean, it is psychological poison for like two hours and 15 minutes, and largely we're seeing Betty Davis just being endlessly cruel. And everyone seems to like the idea that, like, Betty Davis hated Joan Crawford so much that she could really relish, you know, the performance and, like, the, the not hold back in her kicks and, you know, really get out her personal vendetta in this somehow artistic way. And I think that's a strange thing to celebrate. 
like that kind of contempt or competition, especially in the field of art. I mean, I, I just don't, I don't respect diva behavior, but diva behavior to the point of violence is like, I mean, it's just bullying, like why sugarcoat it? And, you know, they're both great actresses, but that doesn't excuse childish behavior. And, and that's what it sort of comes to in the real life. And as is reflected in the film, it just wears me out. Who was that at the door earlier? Elvira. Where is she now, in the kitchen? No, I gave her the day off. She has a pretty hard time considering. I told her to come back next week. Oh, Blanche. You know we got rats in the cellar? say that Betty Davis does a bad job playing a crazy person? Well, of course not. But it is one note just repeated for the two hours. It is a largely one-way beating for the entire length of the film. And I maybe at the time it came out, the trajectory was less obvious as like the the main character that, that Joan Crawford plays, uh, Blanche, is sort of so starts to realize how much control her sister does have over her and how she has slowly become a captive in her own home. And, you know, the interested and aware uh, housekeeper who might be a source of help and what the inevitable collision of that would be. Maybe when the movie originally came out, these weren't sort of obvious lines of trajectory for this type of psycho person, you know, thriller. Yeah, it's not going to work out well for the housekeeper, and it's always going to be about the conflict between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. I can't count on any outside source coming to the rescue. This conceit has undercut a lot more interesting movies than this one, by the way. I feel this way about a lot of movies where the whole movie is based on you know one main conflict, but they spend an awful lot of the movie trying to tell us that, no, it's going to be all resolved by this one outside party. No. No, that's not what we paid to see. That's not what the movie's about. It's an aside. But it's it's strange because it's probably bloomed into what popularized, especially in the 90s, as sort of the, the psycho blank sort of 
craze that happened, you know, the crazy secretary, the crazy woman that you had the love affair with at the office, a fatal attraction, you know, uh, crazy cop with unlawful entry, crazy roommate with single light, light female. There were so many of them. And, uh, you know, it gives you sort of a flashy role of, you know, you can show somebody psychologically getting deeper and deeper into their craziness. So it's something that an actor can really sink their teeth into. You can get interesting performances out of it. But as far as trajectories and as far as how these movies tend to play out, well, they're as familiar in formula as any romantic comedy or any slasher movie in that once you've seen a certain amount of them, you kind of know where it's going and what to expect. So I guess maybe this is the Mount Olympus of that type of movie. And if you like that type of movie, I guess that's great. But uh, I, I, I didn't feel a delicious payoff at the end of the movie. And I didn't necessarily think that the psychological component was necessarily taken seriously. It felt a little bit more like a geek show because of the reality of the both the behind-the-scenes stuff and just the enjoyment of the ugliness of it. It's it's strange that it's it's not approached, at least in a lot of stuff I've read about it, as like devastating or upsetting, like like Rosemary's Baby or Night of the Living Dead again. But it's more like relishing the the conflict between these two great figures, and I don't I don't know that wasn't my experience of it. It was just one of these movies that, as well made as it was, and as put together, and as you know, much varnish as there was on it, it was just another one of those movies. And the extra layer of reality actually made it more distasteful instead of more "quote unquote" real to me, because you know the cruelty to a certain degree was real, and I prefer my fiction to be you know fiction, to be make believe, and it's strange that the movie is kind of celebrated for that. Now, would I tell someone not to watch Whatever Happened to Mary Jane? Absolutely not, because I get that I'm in the minority opinion on this. I mean, to this day, I believe IMDb has it at an 8 point something out of 10. So uh, say what you will about that rating scale. That's a pretty high number for a movie that's considered quote-unquote horror. And I do think, I guess, its position needs to be respected. But I just can't get excited about it. And my guess is there's a lot of people when I did my best of the 60s, which, you know, the whole bunker thing, part of the part of the whole project was to do six high profile 60s movies that I wasn't familiar with or that I hadn't ever got around to seeing to help me inform that list. A lot of people probably wondering why is why is Baby Jane not on the list? Whatever happened to Baby Jane? 60s classic period end of sentence. I mean, it's interesting. I have things to say about it. Maybe a lot of things to say about it. But it's just... it. The nerve that it pushed with me was not something that I enjoyed or that I would want to revisit. You know, it's all the most uncomfortable cringe moments of those, you know, again, psycho blank movies that I was talking about. But very little of the payoff and very little of the, I guess, variety to the performance. Yes, her actions accelerate throughout the movie but uh the betty davis character is just barking mad from the first time we see her till the final frame of the film and joan crawford is put upon and weak and victimized from the first time we see her pretty much till the end of the movie and it's it's a portrait of failure and again when done well like in a movie like misery for instance 
where the audience is, has some clear path of someone to, to identify with or a, a, a clear narrative of like where one of these characters are going, um, it can be very powerful. But I don't think it it is anything but cruel and repetitive here. But that's just my opinion. are dying in noir-style Twilight Zone episode about a man who can change his face to look like anyone he's encountered, and he uses their identity for bad purposes. And, well, that's a, that's a, something that a morality play might take hold of. Third from the sun, military insiders try to escape the world that they helped to ruin, and they gather their families to try and escape on a rocket ship. I shot an arrow into the air. Stranded astronauts struggle to survive after a crash. And uh, sort of it's just a survival tale how they, people eat each other when things get awful. The famous tale of the hitchhiker. A traveler is stalked by a strange hitchhiker who seems to somehow show up ahead of her no matter how far away she drives and in no matter what direction. The fever, even after warning his wife to not go crazy gambling, a man starts to succumb to the addiction of gambling in a kind of supernatural way. The last flight, a military pilot it tries to escape a battle and ends up flying into the future. The Purple Testament, during wartime a, mind, a man finds the ability to be able to tell who will fall next in battle. And is this a gift or a curse? Elegy. Lost astronauts find a strange human mansion. Elegy. Lost astronauts find a strange human museum on an asteroid and seek its origin. Mirror image. A woman discovers her evil doppelganger at a train station. Plays on the fragile idea of self. The monsters are on Maple Street, where uh, some lights in the sky causes paranoia, panic, and terrible things to happen in a neighborhood, playing on the fact that if well-exposed or well-exploited, our own paranoia will be our undoing. Humanity is a self-cleaning oven in some ways. We will eat each other. World of Difference a man discovers he's a fictional character, plays on unreality and sort of early ideas towards the Truman Show and that ilk of stories. Yeah.
is Carol Ladue. Young, beautiful, desirable. Men found her irresistible. But something is happening to her. Something that she doesn't quite understand. And soon she will be swept up in a frantic fury of repulsion. Repulsion, a frightening film that takes the everyday world and distorts it. A terrifying look at the dark side of innocence, losing control. Repulsion, a shocking plunge into the nightmare world of a young woman's sensual fantasies. interesting filmmaker and arguably a terrible person but unfortunately all of the controversy that sort of has swallowed any kind of discussion about the man and his work definitely affects one's vision of repulsion one of his i believe his second feature film from the 60s and like i believe that the movie is psychologically on the side of women here they're they're not you know portraying men in any kind of positive way. Our main character fears and hates men from the first frame of the movie and continues to fear and hate men till the end of the movie, and everything we see shows that she's right about it. But it is one of these movies that I think is of more, at this point, academic interest than anything else. At the time it was made, it was full of edge, and it was, you know, breaking new grounds, and it was feminist and it was you know the the weird approach to the sound design and and some of the editing and some of just the tactics used in the filmmaking kind of made it stand out in the time but in the previous review i was talking about whatever happened to mary jane um as being sort of a the origin kind of movie or one of the origin movies of the the psycho person that that won't you know, will, will, will infest your life and plague your life in a way that that movie sort of was a parent to those sort of type of psycho killers, psycho movies. I think Repulsion is one of the sort of big authors of a woman in a location going crazy. She's already fragile. She's already damaged, usually already on some level been a victim of some evil men. And they go to a place that is either legitimately haunted or just legitimately spooky. And they foster and mother their madness until it is full-blown homicidal 
rage or, or, or outbursts. And we see this type of movie over and over again. They're usually treated in a very sort of artful way, especially if it's a female protagonist. But we do see them with, with men as well. Sort of the reveal is their slow realization of, of their own actual reality or their own perceptions or their own failure to perceive the world. So again, I find myself in this place where on a academic level, I get what the movie's doing and I get that it's doing it well and... I get that some of the stuff that seems a little bit clunky or mishandled is of the time that it was made. For instance, I think during the peak, although some of the violence is famously strong, there's a kill with a razor blade and there's disturbing imageries, horror imageries of hands bursting out of the walls to grab at her and whatnot. There is a scene where we need the violence to feel real, where I kind of feel it doesn't, and I don't know what to fully attribute that to, if that was a budget thing or just a weird unfortunate execution but usually with all the pedigree and Catherine Deneuve and the famous performance it would it just be enough for me to you know at least give it a place on my list I gave it an honorable mention on my list of the best horror movies of the 60s but again just sort of for being an original of its time and of having a lot of influence but this is again not my type of horror movie it's one of many movies about a woman who's already fragile, who becomes more fragile and is driven more insane. And, you know, women are fragile and victims and men are aggressive and monsters. And look, I'm not going to pretend that there's not, you know, stories like this that need to be told. And that, like, the visceral fear of being a beautiful woman and being always eyed and coveted by men around you and the, the the discomfort that that must cause i mean obviously it's going to be exploited for horror but again and again i just see you know the woman being defeated by her own madness and uh, you know driven to it and we're sympathetic to her but you know the thrills and chills come from watching the fall i don't sake Black Swan or Repulsion or uh, we recently talked about in the podcast Darling or The Neon Demon or The Eyes of My Mother it's it's sort of story after story of abuse and self-destruction and women again are fragile and men again are are, are hostile and bad whether or not that's the intention of a lot of these films I feel like that's definitely how they come off and I'm not trying to say oh boohoo men are being portrayed as aggressive and you know rapists and whatnot like that element is real and exists in the world and you know in a way if you are going to address it don't sugarcoat it but I don't particularly enjoy the subject of rape and I've rarely seen the movie that executes it in such a way that it is you know palatable or or suitable to the context of the story or like it's a real it really wrecks the meal for me I, I don't enjoy it so if it if it's part of the story if it's an essential thing that has handle it tactfully if you can and then i believe that this movie is attempting that but it's just a wall-to-wall exploration of crazy and ugly and 
pushing the envelope, obviously, for the time. There's, you know, things to be admired about it. I, I believe this movie's famous for having a a kind of a gay kiss on screen. One of the male characters is at the bar trying to vent about his frustration about not being able to get with Catherine Deneuve. And he, he, he's a strange fellow who plays him off and gives him a little peck on the face. And it's completely harmless by today's standards. But I'm guessing in the 60s, it was it was kind of subversive. And I do believe that the movie's aggressively going for that. However tactfully they're going for it, the reason that they're going to go see this movie is that it's going to push your buttons. And it's going to, you know, show you some ugliness and some things that people aren't used to seeing. Like, first, well, not just rape, but fantasies of rape. She's fearing it and fearing it, but somehow making it manifest in reality. And again, she does fear and is uncomfortable around men, but she's you know, constantly surrounded by them and constantly being pursued by them and is in her own way helplessly fascinated by them too. So it's not that she deserves her fate or that she's bringing on her fate, but she's so obsessed with this happening that it somehow seems, her obsession seems to manifest it into reality as much as it is the evil that men do or them being quote-unquote led on or whatever. Uh, and then I guess to go back where I started... This is coming from Roman Polanski, and I know this is, predates him, you know, <laughs> being charged with roofing an underage woman and taking disgusting sexual advantage of her. Like, how credible that feels in retrospect. However fair or unfair it is, it makes it sort of less believable that he's really on side with this and that it was the exploitation and the sort of look look how far we're pushing it aspect of the film that interested him more than telling a feminist sort of story about how it was not easy to be a woman in the 60s and especially if you were particularly beautiful you know in a way Catherine Deneuve's performance was just celebrated and deservedly I feel for all of the implications and all of her you know issues she almost seems too put together and too unvarnished like she she does look like a model she does look like that the one of these people who is so aggressively beautiful that the world will open doors for her that she doesn't even necessarily want or need uh whereas everything that we learn about her tells us that she should be this sort of fragile timid person outwardly that's not how she expresses herself you know she's not necessarily putting it out there and looking for every man she sees but she's a very put together beautiful woman and uh like that's not reflected by her character it's just sort of wow look how beautiful Catherine Deneuve was and I believe she was in her early 20s when she made this film and she is very beautiful and I get that it's the that 60s aesthetic you know and she is that sort of ideal of beauty for that time and I, maybe it's another one of those horror movies that you just needed to be of the age when it came out. I think that if you were of the right age when you saw Blair Witch Project, when that movie was all hyped and around and you'd been part of the viral marketing, it was just a powerful experience and it's just hard to recreate it when you hear all the noise around Blair Witch today. To a certain degree, things like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's so specifically tactile, low-budget 70s movie that some people have a hard time looking at it now. And But when it came out, I can see it shaking the ch cages. And, like, it's, it's a horror movie with something on its mind. And, again, just 
and this is a basic complaint. And I was watching a lot of movies in the '60s, and during the the, the bunker month in October, I'm watching uh, a movie a day almost, and you know, 36 episodes of Twilight Zone, and trying to keep up with the reading. It, I was inundated with a lot, and you know, that's not always the best way to receive a movie. But I did think that this movie kind of went slow, especially in the middle act. There was some fat on this thing. Like, it, it was sort of spinning its wheels. And I don't know. I have to be honest about it. I, I felt that here. So where does it come to recommending it? It's not my jam, but it might be yours. There are people who really like these sort of art house, you know, psychological disintegration horror movies. And again, the fact that they happen to be repetitive, monster movies are repetitive, slasher movies are repetitive. If you like this sort of thing, you will probably really like Repulsion. So yeah, I like my horror movies more fun. And I, I think even the most staunch defenders and, and lovers of Repulsion would, would, you know, agree. It's not fun. Astronauts encounter Martians, and the Martians try to supply Earthlings exactly what they desire. With a bit of a Twilight Zone twist, of course. Execution. A Western outlaw is hanged and suddenly appears in the 1960s present. Cautionary tales of science as well as sort of a tale of how evil seems to thrive in any time. But again, Twilight Zone will twist things. The Big Tall Wish, another one of the more sentimental Twilight Zone episodes, although with this strange darkness to it, as there's a lesson being taught both ways, with a child teaching an aging boxer the importance of believing in a dream or in a wish, and the boxer teaching the kid the importance of accepting the realities of the real world. A nice place to visit. A criminal experiences the afterlife and gets the idea that hell is forever. So basically, wherever you are in the afternight life could potentially, I suppose, become hell. Nightmare as a Child is the story of an evil child who torments a woman with both her past and warnings of a dangerous future. A Stop at Willoughby is about a man who escapes, either in fantasy or reality, to an idyllic place called Willoughby and his repeated desires and efforts to return there. Chaser, a man buys a love potion from a demon. And, you know, be careful what you wish for and don't try to ever trust a guy named Demon, one would think. Passage for Trumpet, a suicidal musician is lost in a personal limbo, which may turn into an actual limbo. In this case, the Twilight Zone is trying to teach us and our character to appreciate life. Mr. Beavis is the only truly not great episode of the first season in my measure, and it's about an idiot who has a guardian angel who helps him 
to learn the lesson to be himself. So if you're an idiot, be an idiot. I don't know. It's not for me. The After Hours, a classic tale of a woman and her encounters with Mag with mannequins after hours in her department store. Mighty Casey, sort of ball fantasy, if you want to call it that, I guess more sci-fi. What if you secretly had uh, an advantage in your team in the form of future technology? And a world of his own is the tale of a creative writer, a playwright, who, when busted by his wife for strange behavior, tries to convince her, her that he can literally create worlds with his imagination. And is he right? And is it true? Or is it the Twilight Zone? is what he seeks, and this is why he kills. Where are you? Where are you? Look out for Carl Byrne as the peeping Tom. Fear him, but pity him also. <laughs> it's so good. Watch out for Moira Shearer as the lovely stand-in who innocently dances into danger. falls victim to the charms of a lonely stranger upstairs. Switch it off, Mark! Mark, switch it off! Maxine Audley, as the blind woman who senses the danger that threatens her and her daughter, but is helpless. Don't be frightened. Not frightened. Hot. So put that camera away! There is no future for anyone who tries to befriend him. He invades the privacy of innocent people till the piercing eyes of his camera meet the terrified eyes of his victims. And with a compulsion akin to madness, he shoots the final fearful scene. Directed by Michael Powell and starring Karl Heinz Baum. I hope I'm saying that correctly. 
uh, which is kind of interesting because he's like the only not British actor in the movie and it kind of others him before we even know just how crazy and terrible he is. I feel like in this Bunker episode, I've been hard on these cult classic movies. You heard me talking down about repulsion and talking down about whatever happened to Mary Jane. But Peeping Tom, I think, is one of these movies that, though it was discovered lately, largely due to Martin Scorsese, you know, getting his hands on it and getting it played again in theaters and, and getting more ground cell of interest. <clears throat> It actually shares a lot in common with another 1960s, you know, slasher-ish movie called Psycho from Alfred Hitchcock. Not just on the subject matter about terribly broken, you know, unhinged men doing terrible deeds, but <clears throat> that both of them were completely hated by critics upon their release. But whereas Hitchcock just sort of got a how dare you do something so, you know, plain and so, you know, exploitive and, you know, it looked cheap. It didn't have the pedigree of some of his other films. It, it seemed like Hitchcock had taken himself down a notch. But he was still in the end Hitchcock and any movie that he made was still going to be in conversation. Whereas unfortunately, this was not the same case for Powell in the UK especially. It's not a tragedy in that this was the only movie he made and this is, you know, his entire legacy. Because he made a lot of movies in the, you know, I guess the the 40s and the, into the 50s and maybe even in the 30s, but I can't name any of the other ones. The, the one he is now known for is Peeping Tom and it's sort of understood part of its cult status is it was the one that got missed at the time. But it was also the one that kind of ended the career of this great director. And it would have been even better if it was recognized at its time. And maybe we could have gotten more and see how much further he could push it. But I risk sounding like a hypocrite, heaping praise on this. Because I was talking about the ugly subject matter of the previous films. And this is definitely ugly subject matter. And I think part of the thing that put the critics off, especially and maybe even the people at the time, was that... We're weirdly asked through the filmmaking to be sympathetic, I guess, if for lack of a better word, or at least we're on side with this man who is killing women. And there is definitely a sexual component, as there seems always must be with these sorts of like things, but the thing that I think I guess humanizes him for lack of a better word is that he wants to make a film he says he's making a documentary and it seems like a lot of the scenes in this documentary are going to be re repeating each other so either it's about perfecting it and finding that absolute perfect scene or getting to his you know predetermined ending that he I think has already sort of prepared for himself as the movie plays out but whether or not he's doing this for sexual satisfaction or to make the perfect film, the idea is, is that he is hunting and murdering women and we follow him and we are in his perspective. It is also, of course, famous because a lot of the point of view shots, he's stalking women for a while before he, you know, approaches them and he films them. And then when he talks to them, a lot of the times the prostitutes or, you know, women who could disappear fairly easily, 
he because he does work and legitimately in the film industry and in some of the sort of adult angled porno stuff uh, he helps to edit but he does want to be a legit filmmaker he can he can talk to these women and seem and sound legit because on some level he is but the goal is to get him within these women in the lens of his camera and with his very phallic stabby you know pull the coming past the front of the lens capture their fear as he terrorizes them and that final moment of death and violence and penetration although in this case you know literal violent penetration and again the the sexual component is present but it's not it's not the focus of the grisliness of the film which i appreciated it, it it's still you know violence against women let's let's not sugarcoat that but um it is it's it's less for lack of a better word rapey uh it's more psychologically gross and you know that's honest to the subject matter it's your turn now love It's her first time. Come on, love, don't be shy. He said you needn't photograph my face. I want to. Fix my bruises too. I want to. What about the customers? Don't be shy. For me, it's my first time too. Yours? In front of eyes, like eyes as full of. parallels to Psycho keep on adding up like why would such a legitimate filmmaker tackle this subject and and what were they trying to do and did they realize how envelope pushing that the movies would end up being again Psycho's sort of started to get its attention right away it's similar how things happen with big big horror movies The Shining in 1980 Stanley Kubrick Critics hated it when it came out, but almost right away there was this sort of cult fire brewing under it, and, and now it's sort of just recognized as one of the greatest horror movies ever made. That really could be the fate of Powell's film here. Peeping Tom could just keep growing in its eminence. Like, in a lot of ways, and this might sound blasphemous, there's more going on here, and there's a little bit more psychological cinema verite and... The fact that the filmmaker is addressing that, you know, he knows how to make film and we're watching this film and the film within the film. There's more going on here than in Psycho in a lot of ways. Psycho does straightly deal in like the exploitation of the violence and the exploitation of mentally ill people as, you know, your, your horror movie villains. And uh, that's fine. That's, we, we, we will see it. We have seen it for decades. We will see it for decades. But um these movies didn't invent this, but they popularized it. And I, don't, I think for me, Peeping Tom has a bit of an edge here. Like, uh, 
as far as things to say about it anyway. Psycho is unmistakably a classic and deserves to be high on the list of the 60s movies. But Peeping Tom was trying more stuff than, than, than Psycho was. And uh, it in, doesn't feel like in the artificial way or in the outing way of some of the other more experimental 60s films where it just becomes so of its time that it's only for its time. I think it's aged very well. And I, I like the idea that we're not identifying with him necessarily as a person who wants to kill people, but on some level, we can identify with someone who wants something done to do something, create something, and be as best as they can make it. And that's the movie he's making. And maybe that's the thing that we shamefully end up cheering for, the filmmaker, but not the murderer. If, again, cheering for is a little bit strong to put it, but like... It's just weird how the gaze of the camera and the way that the movie is told is that we want him to get caught, we don't like him, but we're like, psychologically, how's he going to get out of this? What's he doing now? And like, uh uh-oh, what's happening? Like, we're identifying with him to a degree that would be uncomfortable. But it's not abstract in the way that repulsion kind of was when what's real and what's not. And it's not repetitive and endless to me in the way that whatever happened to Mary Jane was. It's it's definitely got its own identity, which is strong and rich. And yes, this is something that's going to be popularizing this, what, what makes the slasher movement happen. And if you want to talk shit about the slasher movie, I, can, I will hear what you have to say, but I will probably largely disagree with it. But is exploitation, both sexual and violent and mental health, is that in there? Of course, but different strokes for different folks. And uh, what are the movies trying to do and how successful are they at it? Peeping Tom is completely successful. It's completely interesting. And it's not purely on an academic level. It still works as a suspenseful, interesting perspective on this type of film. If you're in to this type of film. Because I certainly don't want to come off as someone who's like really snotty too about talking shit about all these movies, especially because they were made 20 years before I was born. More in some cases. Like, obviously they're made from a different culture for a different culture. And my perspective on it is going to be different. And, uh, you know, I can recognize the flaws of the, within the film or the flaws of the creators. But did these work for me? Did they not? Peeping Tom still works. And uh, that's a compliment for a movie from 1960. And uh, the conversation about it is not in any danger of ending soon. Six of the most famous episodes of The Twilight Zone, almost unavoidable in pop culture, are in the first season. I will mention those six that I deem the most popular, the most familiar, and then I'll just recommend six random other ones, but that will still give you lots to explore. And um, I'm mostly not going to get too hard onto the spoilers if I can help it, but 
Walking Distance is one of those intensely personal, aw shucks, Twilight Zone episodes. And like, usually when I'm watching Twilight Zone, when I was watching the 80s iteration as a kid, whenever they had one of those ones that was a little too flatly sci-fi or a little bit too much of a feel-good, aw shucks, morality tale, I'd feel ripped off. That's not what I wanted from Twilight Zone. Walking Distance is the original aw shucks, Twilight Zone, and it is the best. It's a really great story about revisiting your childhood. And the man who takes this walk intends just to visit his hometown and sort of remember his past, but he somehow manages to physically go backward in time. And uh, there are consequences to what happens there. And, uh, you know, just the dramatic intensity of being able to see your dad again at a younger age from a different point of view seeing yourself at a younger age, seeing the world and how different it was, you know, as the adult full person that you are back physically in the world of your own childhood. It's sort of powerfully nostalgic and uh, it's famous for a reason. Of course, Time Enough at Last about a nerdy bookworm who just wants to read and is constantly distracted and wants to lose himself in his literature who inadvertently survives bombs dropping and the classic Twilight Zone nice try asshole twist that is involved in this very famous story. I mean, you know, a lot of people learned about these old Twilight Zone plots from watching The Simpsons as a kid of the 90s or whatever, but uh, uh, it's a famous story for a reason. It's, you know, it's one of the most famous episodes. The Hitchhiker, about a woman who keeps on seeing a mysterious hitchhiker on a long car journey and uh, he seems to be no matter where she goes no matter how fast she drives always waiting for her with this thumb and his knowing creepy smile uh, it's sort of a classic form tale within horror but it's really well executed here in a 25 minute package well played everybody involved with the hitchhiker Mirror Image is the classic doppelganger story and sort of the paranoia of trying to explain your situation when something inexplicable happens and you're sure you're telling the truth but you're also aware of how crazy you're appearing to others. And what does the doppelganger mean? What does the doppelganger want? What is the consequence of this discovery? How did it happen? Why did it happen? Just one of many unanswered questions in this classic Mirror Image episode. Of course, the monsters are due on Maple Street, a kind of on-the-nose parable fable about how society will eat itself when things go to the left, you know? When everybody is required to work together to meet a goal, that's exactly when petty squabbles over who said what when will break everything down. And what's the bigger threat? The lights in the sky or the paranoia in our backyard? I think we all know the answer. And of course, the after hours, and my number six here is like creepy mannequins. And uh, I, I worked in a department store front and back, and you know, I was around mannequins all the time, and it never bothered me. But every now and then, there's a movie or, you know, indeed a Twilight Zone episode that makes mannequins creepy, and this might be the original classic tale of a woman and her noticing strange behavior in the mannequins at her work. So those are six of the most familiar, most famous, most celebrated, I think, of the first season. 
And again, if you're wondering, what about the alien on the wing? And what about, you know, the kid who can control the universe? These are all in future seasons of the Twilight Zone. I'm talking specifically about season one. And here are six episodes that were maybe not as well known that I highly recommend. <clears throat> Two of them are based off Richard Matheson, so I will nod a personal bias here, but let's just keep moving. The Last Flight is about a pilot who may or may not have acted cowardly in a combat scenario, but somehow, inexplicably, by, by a fool's luck, has flown into the future, the modern age of the 1960s, where he struggles to explain his very existence himself and, you know, his, at this time, very antique airplane. And is this his new destiny, or is this his chance uh, to choose and redeem his old destiny? What You Need is another one of these classic tales, um, sort of just sort of, even the first time you watch it, it feels like a story that, you know, you know. <laughs> this is a man, one of these charming sort of agents of fate, who goes around seeming to enjoy giving his customers exactly what they want at a fair price. And no matter what random thing it is, be it a, a train ticket or uh, soap or whatever, they don't need to know what they need at the time, but he knows for them. Uh, it usually ends up being advantageous for them and uh, gives them a positive fate. And this thug, this bully, this gangster, notices this guy's gift and just uses his muscle to try to exploit it and it definitely feeds on a that's a really cool concept for me for an idea for a character and you know a, a, a bully getting a classic sort of morality twilight zone twist thrown his way and when the sky was open is another matheson story this one well changed from its original source I believe in the original story they weren't astronauts. There was no even suggested explanation. But uh, this man notices that a, a friend of his had vanished. And not just, like, disappeared and people are looking for him, but no one seems to remember him. He remembers pictures of his friend, but he's no longer within the pictures. His entire existence is irrevocably gone and undone everywhere around him except for in his own experience and memory and the more he notices this the more it starts to domino effect and the more he suspects the same fate will befall him but knowing this is a thing that is happening and that indeed may will happen is perhaps not enough to prevent it from happening it's sort of this scary tale of inevitability and I don't know if it's a metaphor for death or paranoia or the paranoia of death or both, but it's definitely one that sticks with me. Elegy is one of the weird sci-fi horror sci hybrids that uh, could have been satirized on an episode of The Simpsons or, or, or something like this. I've seen iterations and variations of the tale, but uh, these lost astronauts find this asteroid that is inexplicably hospitable for them to survive on but when they touch down they find all these people seemingly frozen in time depicting different areas of history of, of earth and what on earth is this place and who on earth is in charge and don't worry jerry Maguire's there to explain 
I highly, I highly encourage you to check this out if you don't know what I'm talking about. I'm a fan of Judgment Night. It's one of the ones that's a period piece at the time. It's set on a, a boat during wartime. And this guy seeming to lose his identity, his memory, everything. He just seems to find himself on the on this boat and with these strangers. But it's all very familiar and it's all very deja vu. And again, it's... It's a horror story that's, if you're a fan of the genre, you've probably bumped into this type of tale before. But it's the, it's the singer, not the song in some cases. And I love the atmosphere of the story. I love the vibe of the story. And inevitability, if it's a weakness, at least it's a theme within this particular tale, which I really enjoy. And I think my favorite episode of the first season is actually a, another science fiction one called The Lonely. And uh, it sort of epitomizes the greatness of the, the whole series as far as I'm concerned. This man who's been sentenced to life on this remote asteroid for accidentally killing someone in a fight uh, is going mad by himself. His only reprieve is when every so often, every several months, people drop by supplies and he's so desperate for human contact that one of the men takes pity on him and gives him a gift. And I'll get into a little bit of spoilers here. The gift is a robot, or the robot of a beautiful woman, someone he can talk to and kill time with and feel like he has something other than his thoughts to deal with. And he resists it at first because he doesn't like the idea of having a relationship with a robot, but his circumstance and his loneliness dictates that he loves this robot. So much so that he comes to not want his circumstances to change. And it's a really devastating story. And it was one of the times like when I was watching it, uh, even with all the craziness that I was watching, all the classic 60s movies, all the ridiculous sequels and like... This one actually took my breath away a little bit. There's a moment of shocking, strange violence that happens towards the end of this episode, and uh, it, I don't know, it, it, it left its impression on me. It's a good Twilight Zone twist moment, and uh, I highly recommend the entire series, like I say, but there's something particularly special about the first few seasons, and especially this very first one, and such mad respect for Rod Serling, and of course... Matheson and Beaumont and a lot of the other writing contributors and 35 out of 36 positive reviews for these episodes really as far as I'm concerned there are some that are more dated than others there are some that I you know enjoy more so than others but like pound for pound beat for beat story for story performance for performance Twilight Zone consistently knocked it out of the park Maybe I'll reiterate to say it's not maybe just the best genre entry of the 60s. It still might be our best sort of singular piece of fantastic entertainment filmmaking that we've achieved. The, the, the open doors that the Twilight Zone sort of supplies creatively is limitless. The fan base slowly grew, but it had a really strong and a really young, apparently, fan base that kept it alive for as many seasons as it lived. And as I've mentioned, I think when the show extended to 
45 minutes instead of 25 minutes. I think something was lost having a little bit too much air in the proceedings. I like these quick, concise, creepy or cool or sci-fi angles that they play in in these tight 25 minute packages. And even talking about these 12 that I did just mention, that just puts a dent in season one. It's very generous. And if you like this podcast, if you like genre, if you like good storytelling, I encourage you to check out the original Twilight Zone series. I find it usually hard to review series generally, which is why I avoid doing it on the podcast. And especially something like this, where there's not even a through line. It's every episode kind of starts with zero as far as characters and plot. And once again, with, with that open a category, you'd think there'd be a lot more misses than we bump into in this. Future iterations of this show don't do as good consistently with their stories and their execution as this, which just was a masterpiece right out of the gate. bunker experiment is closed. I am released psychologically from the imaginary bunker that I put myself in for just over two years. And yes, this this episode is edited and put together the night before it is to drop. (laughs) I was hoping to use these as cushions, as, you know, episodes I can drop in when I'm dealing with other things in my life, because sometimes the real world sneaks in or having trouble getting guests to do the podcast or whatever. But the first and the last Bunker episodes were just, just made it in under the wire. And if that sort of desperation leaked into the episode, I'm sorry. But take solace. It was the last Bunker episode. And things will go back to relative normalcy. It's just as normal as rank and review gets next week. 
thank you as always for listening to Rank and Review. Send your feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Be gentle. This was an experiment. And check out the website at rankandreview.ca. I, as always, am your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons. Thank you so much for listening.